This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Our guest today is television director Anthony Rich, whom you will all know when I tell you he has been the director of Big Bang Theory. He was nominated for a Director's Guild of America Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in a Comedic Series for Big Bang Theory. He was also nominated twice by the Online Film and TV Association for Best Direction in a Comedy Series, also for The Big Bang Theory. He is also, very interestingly, the son of director John Rich, who is known for All in the Family, The Dick Van Dyke Show, and The Twilight Zone. Say hello to our listeners, Anthony. How are you, everybody? Thanks for having me, you guys. And I was thinking about your dad being a TV director when you were growing up. And I just have to ask, did you learn directing at your father's knee? Were you on set all the time? Uh, there was there was uh, combinations of it. Uh, and for, again, forgive my, my voice. I'm getting over some bronchitis. So I, you may hear a couple of little coughs here and there. Um, yes, we were allowed on set occasionally. Um, he kept things very kind of separate. So uh, that was kind of a treat when we were allowed. Uh, and there was a very rigorous set of rules that as children we had to obey uh, when the red light was on and how to, you know, when the bell started and how you had to stand in a corner and be absolutely silent. Um, and we also found out the hard way what would happen if uh, those rules were disobeyed. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> years, uh, I probably was about 10 and my brother was eight. Um, and my father was directing a sitcom called Billy and it was based on a, um, on an English sitcom called Billy Liar. And uh, a young actor named Steve Gutenberg was the star. And they would have these, so Billy's um, had this fantasy life. And so they would have these special kind of guest stars. And so there was a, an episode where Lou Ferrigno uh, from the Hulk got to come. So we got picked up and taken to the studio and got to meet Lou Ferrigno. And, uh, but there was a moment where they were, and it was a single camera show. So uh, there's no audience and they were rolling and uh, Steve Gutenberg wasn't in the shot and was kind of horsing around with my brother. And you know, we were always told you stand in that corner, don't speak, don't move. And if you so much as, you know, cough or sneeze, you're out of here. And uh, I don't know what happened, but we missed the bell somehow. And my brother was horsing around with Steve Gutenberg and the, the take started and my brother giggled and laughed really loud. And it was, everything stopped. And we hear this roar of my father saying, and cut! 
and you can't believe uh, how fast two little kids can be grabbed by the collar by a production assistant, tossed into a car, and driven home. So, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so so uh, that was that kind of experience. I did have some sweet, wonderful ones. Uh, when my father was directing all in the family, I was about well. When he started, I was only two. So he uh, so he was on that show from seventy to seventy four, and I want to say by around the end when I was about four or five. I knew enough about the show that I knew who Archie was. And um, I had a moment and I was terrified of him. So I'd go to the set and my father was a very big, big man and, and, and tall and Archie was a big man tall, uh, at least from my, my perspective. And so I would cower behind my dad's legs and, um, and uh, Carol O'Connor, I think, didn't like the idea that there was, here's this little kid that's terrified of him. And I have this memory of him kind of getting down on his knee and saying, hey, listen, he said, so, I don't want you to be afraid of me. And he says, now you see that chair? He said, now that chair, that's my chair. I'm the only one allowed to sit in that chair, me or one of my friends. And I would very much like it if you'd be my friend. So oh. can you come sit in my chair? What do you say, pal? And, oh. and I, did a little, I did a little nod and he picked me up and he put me in the chair. And, and then in high school, I went to the Smithsonian on a, a, a school trip and there's the chairs. And I'm like, ah, I sat in that chair. So, <laughs> so yes, I, I've had some of that, you know, uh, on the, I was on the Brady Bunch set. Uh, my dad had done the pilot for the first six episodes. Uh, and But then Florence Henderson was a neighbor and she had become good friends with my mom. And again, that when Brady Bunch was on, I was an infant, uh, but we watched it when I was five and six years old. So we got to go down and uh, Ann B. Davis, who played Alice, went to Michigan with my father. And that's how she got the part. And so, you know, we knew a lot of the, the people. We knew Florence's family. And uh, so I do remember being on that set, too, and the, getting the concept of the, you know, these big stairs. And you go up the stairs and you're at the top of those stairs and then you get there and, and there's absolutely nothing. It's just, you know, plywood and another stair, set of stairs going down. So it's just see your child's brain kind of figuring out, wait, there's something rather odd about all this. Um, but it was, it, was, <laughs> yeah. it was odd and kind of and kind of magical. So, yeah. Oh, so I, it sounds like it. Yeah. How did you get into show business? Was it the influence from your dad or some other motivation that started you on your path? You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, early on, um, uh, it was right around when I was a junior in high school, my father had a show. Um, and he, he would kind of work sporadically. He, he, he was a kind of producer for hire, a director for hire. Then he started his own production company. Uh, and then, you know, at Hollywood, the things go, they don't go. So, you know, he, my dad spent a lot of time away on set. He spent a lot of time at the kitchen table in a bathrobe and slippers um, <laughs> in my childhood. And so when I was in high school, um, he had a new show. They had two, actually. Uh, and he was the executive producer. He had he'd formed a production company with Henry Winkler. And they had two pilots. Uh, one was a sitcom called Mr. Sunshine. And that had, uh, was starring Jeffrey Tambor. And the other was an action show called MacGyver. And oh. um, my father was going to direct, uh, he was going to be the executive producer on both with Henry. And then he was going to direct uh, Mr. Sunshine. And at the time, you know, it was my, I was ready for my first summer job. I was 17. And I said, you know, dad, I'd, I'd love to come and be a runner. And runners, back then, that's what a production assistant was called. You'd be a runner or a gopher. And basically, you were a gopher, like you go for this, run for that. You know, it was the lowest job on the total pole. And uh, I said, I'd really love to, you know, work this summer. And he said, absolutely not. Uh, I don't believe in nepotism. 
And uh, if I hire you, I'm taking a job away from someone else who deserves it. And if you, you know, want to work in this business, um, then you need to go to college and you need to go get a degree. And then when you get out, you go get a job just like everybody else. Um, and it was kind of, you know, the door slammed. He's just, just not fake. And then my mother said, <laughs> she looked at my father and said, you have a show and your son wants to work on it. So you are going to hire him. Uh, and so I actually got my first job because my mother insisted that my father hire me. Oh, um, good for and, her. Yeah, so, good for her. so that's and the sad part of the code and it did, part of the story, it, it didn't quite happen like this, but in my memory, she said, and you're gonna hire him and by the way, I'm leaving you. And it wasn't quite that fast, but I would say within about three or four weeks, uh, they split. So I'm now the assistant for my father, uh, an assistant for my father uh, at Paramount Studios in the summer of 1985. My parents have just split. Uh, and he was a, a challenging person on a good day. Uh, he was that old school screaming, yelling, you know, uh, kicked the chair, you know, he once kicked a chair across the stage on all in the family and uh, broke his foot, but wouldn't let anybody know that he'd done it, stomped off stage. And um, so here I'm this 17 year old kid and working for him and not in a great mood to begin with. So uh, fortunately over time, you know, I, I learned to prove myself and uh, I kind of, um, you know, worked as a PA that first summer and I thought, oh my God, I want to do anything else. This is a business filled with crazy people. And with my father, the craziest of all of them. Um, and that's, you know, the, the, the things that would, the invectives that would come out of his mouth uh, were just, it was all outrageous. I thought, oh, there's gotta be another way to do this. Um, and then, you know, in college, I would do these summer jobs and each one was more boring than the last. And I just kept having this memory of that that magic behind those studio walls and being a part of it and being a part. There's just something that you get on a set and you get behind, you know, in this kind of magic factory and, and this, that boundary between reality and fantasy. And, you know, you guys are performers, you know, um, it's, it's a drug and it just pulls you back. And I thought, all right, well, I come from crazy people, so I guess I can deal with crazy people. So wow. uh, I, I started my journey that way. And, um, you know, after college, I, I worked again on one of my dad's shows. And by, by then he was a little more uh, open. I, I worked on MacGyver actually uh, as a PA. And by then the show had gone up to Canada. So I was working in the LA office doing post-production and it was great. I was learning just various different parts of the process. Um, in fact, uh, you know, part of the job there was dealing with scripts. I'm sorry, dealing with uh, post and delivering um, videotapes and stuff, but also dealing with scripts. And uh, the, many of the writers were in Los Angeles. And so they would send, you know, there was no email and uh, barely fax back then in the mid eighties, uh, late eighties. And so you would, I would copy the scripts and you'd get them out to, for, for uh, distribution. And I taught myself the, the process of looking at a story treatment and looking at what a teleplay would be. And for fun, late one night, uh, late, you know, several nights uh, that first summer after, uh, during college, um, I tried my hand and wrote a, a MacGyver that was so off the wall that when I gave it to my dad, he said, I said, well, this is really interesting. And by then the MacGyver had a showrunner that was in Canada, a guy named Steve Downing, who ran the, he was the, ran the day-to-day, -day, was the head writer. And we sent this 
script up and and the response was it was a teleplay i mean a a story treatment the response was this is so off the wall we might just have to do it and they actually bought it and they did it and it aired as the fifth season finale so that's my one and only uh script that i've sold or treatment they, they wouldn't let me do the teleplay uh but i was 21 and you know i heard like I wrote this episode of MacGyver and then they shot it and, and they flew me up to Canada to watch them film it. It was, it was awesome. Wow. And, and talk about magic. Yeah, it was, it was, it was wild. And you, there was a scene in a hospital and you, I you walk in and there's prop people carrying things that you had invented in your head. It's like, that's really cool. So, uh, you know, that just kind of launched it. And, and then I got into the director's guild basically by, by the time I was about 23, my dad was on board with me working and he said, you know, we really should get you into the guild for the pension. Um, and uh, you know, I was 20, what am I thinking about a pension for? He says, it's good health insurance. And, uh, and Amazing. He says, there's a way to get you in as a stage manager. Uh, and he says, but you know, I, and again, I, it sounds like he opened a lot of doors. He, he really tried to prove to everyone that I was not getting a free ride. So um, without getting into crazy detail, there, there was a lot of screaming and yelling and uh, you know, making sure I knew my place and things like that. So, but uh, uh -huh. I did get my first break on on one. I, I did two of his shows, um, and then uh, that's kind of where it went from there. So, and who do you think was your strongest influence or mentor? Well, you know, I would say a, 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 there's. I, I would give you four people. Um, you know, my father, obviously, uh, first of all, um, and kind of. I mean, he was he was brilliant at what he did, and that was that also made it very difficult because. You know, he would yell and scream, and he was right. And so you're like, oh god! It make you. He was also somebody that would. Uh, he would make you feel like you're about two feet tall. Uh, but you learned. You know, you learned that way. And and frankly, early on, I thought, oh, I don't have the temperament um, to 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 do this, to be a director. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll try and pursue a career in writing. And I, I've written, a, uh, I optioned a novel and I wrote a screenplay, uh, both of which got optioned, never got made, which is also the story of, of Hollywood. Um, yeah. And as I kind of was working my way, um, you know, I, when I was an assistant director for him, it, it was starting to affect our relationship. So I, I actually said, you know what, I, um, this isn't healthy. So I said, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to work you know, for you anymore. Uh, and when uh, later he would tell it that, that it was the, he would tell it the reverse. He would say, I said, you know, Anthony, I'm going to send you out of the world. I'm not hiring you anymore. And that's how he told people. And I thought, okay, well, you can have your, <laughs> your opinion about how, how it was and uh, I'll have mine. Um, and who are the other but, three people? Well, and so I, I, I started as a second AD work. I, I filled in on home improvement. And that got me into the Wind Dancer Company, and they were spectacular. Uh, they had a show; um, it was a, a spinoff called Thunder Alley, and it had Ed Asner and Haley Joel Osment. Um, it had three different mothers uh, throughout the run. Uh, the first one on the pilot was Felicity Huffman, and then uh, a woman named Diane Benora did eight episodes, and then the, the main mom was Robin Riker. Um, and one of the directors there was Robbie Benson, who was the actor from Beauty and the Beast. And, you know, Robbie had a huge career uh, as an actor, as a teenager. You know, I'm sure you guys remember him and trying to remember some of his ice castles. And, uh, but towards the, you know, after he kind of stopped acting, he was, a, he was directing full-time in a lot of sitcoms, doing Ellen. And, uh, and he kind of took me under his wing. And so I, I worked my way up the chain with him. He made me a first AD the first time, uh, I, you know, after working several seasons with him as a second AD. And he really taught me how to think like an actor. 
and not just as a director, but as a uh, even as an assistant director. And he, I'd be a new first AD and say, go stand in the set and see what you see. And so before every run through or before we'd start filming, I'd stand where the actor stood and look around and then suddenly you go, oh, well, there's a ladder where I would be crossing, you know, and I would see things that you don't necessarily see from the comfort of the camera aisle. And so he really taught me how to think like an actor. Uh, he also said, go, it was the, probably the best advice I'd ever got. He said, go take an acting class. And, you know, I'm the world's worst actor. Um, and uh -huh. I, you know, I, you're I, not. I, well, I, I mean, you know, I, it's, it's, it's just not, it's just not something that comes natural. Um, and, and that's why he said, go and do it. And a friend of mine from high school grew up similar. Uh, his father um, started, I think it was South Coast Rep. It's one, he had a big theater. And so um, the guy that I went to school with, his name Stuart Rogers, and he had a, a, an acting class. I think he still teaches today and he was spectacular. And I said, look, Stuart, I wanna study, but you know, I wanna be a director. I have no desire to be an actor. Can I just kind of audit or you know watch? And he said, or you know, or direct some scenes. He says, I, I think you should just be a participant. And and it was also great advice on on Stewart's part. And one of the assignments in the class was to do to write a like a, a monologue about your life about thirty minutes and then get up and perform it. And you know, here was a class of thirty kids or thirty you know people you know uh, mid twenties or whatnot that I'd become my friends. And, to, and I had no problem writing it. I had no problem memorizing it. And I had no problem delivering it. But standing up on the stage in front of 30 people, 30 friendly people, and your mouth goes dry and your throat goes dry. And you thought, and, and it was so Robbie's lesson was it, gave, it taught you empathy. Like, this is what the actors, you know, go through. And I, I'm telling you, and uh, we can talk about this a little bit later on. Every actor that I've ever worked with, no matter how famous and sometimes the most famous, they get those nerves. And you know, and, and the more famous they are, the more they have to lose. So, so I would say Robbie in particular really taught me how to, to think like an actor. Um, and it was just a great gift. And he, he's been so supportive when I started directing, we still email, uh, he teaches. So I've done some of these Zoom classes uh, with him. Uh, he te he, last year, uh, we, I saw him, it was about a year and a half ago, he was at uh, University of Indiana or Indiana University. And I did a thing like this, talk to the class by, uh, by I guess it wasn't Zoom, but it was some teleconference thing. It was fantastic. Um, and then my other mentor uh, was a guy uh, who directed probably I think the last four or five seasons of Seinfeld named Andy Ackerman. And Andy uh, started as an editor had worked on Cheers and had worked, it worked on WKRP, ironically was my father's editor on the Newhart pilot, which was Bob Newhart's second, uh, the one in the, in the inn in Vermont. And I had uh, booked a series in New York with Al Franken as the first AD. And Andy was the, um, was the director for the first, I wanna say two or three episodes. And I remember being terrified because my whole, you know, I, as much as I loved Robbie, like when Robbie got, got intense or he got upset you know that beast face comes from something and you know they draw a face <laughs> so i would see that look and you know and it was with robbie it was always very short-lived and there was always love behind those eyes with my father was terrifying i've worked for other producers that could be terrifying you know this old school um there, there just was uh, there, there could be a lot of tension in comedy if, uh, if you're catching my dress. And so here I'm coming to New York on this brand new show. Uh, I've never worked in New York before in, the, in this capacity. I was nervous about the crew there. And here's this Andy Ackerman, you know, and uh, 
he shows up and he's the, I mean, he's tall, but he's the most laid back. I mean, he's, I, he lives in Pasadena. He has a place in Newport. He's a beach guy, you know, and he says, how are you? And he says, hey, how's your dad? I was, oh, you know my dad? He said, yeah, I was his editor. And uh, I said, oh God, I, I'm sorry. I hope he didn't yell at you. He goes, no, he never yelled at me. He says, I heard it. <laughs> so I was aware, <laughs> I, I witnessed it, but uh, he was pretty good with me. And after spending a couple episodes with Andy and he's, he just has this kind, calm demeanor and calm personality, I suddenly thought, oh, wow, I, I can do this. Because I always thought to be a director, you had to be that old school. We, I joke about this, one of our, a dear close family friend is, and I hate to be doing the name dropping, but I'm gonna be doing some of this today, is Rita Moreno. Her daughter's a very good friend of mine. And you know, my whole thing as a child growing up of what a director was, it was Rita on the electric company. And she had, the, she had the, the riding boots and the whip and the bullhorn. And we would say, daddy, how come you don't have a whip and a bullhorn? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like uh, the lady on the electric company. So we, I always laugh with Rita about that. And, you know, with my father, you, you know, if you spend some time working with him, you realize some people don't need a bullhorn. You know, he, all he had to do is open his mouth and, and you knew. Um, and I, I would say those people, uh, so, you know, my father, Robbie, Andy Ackerman, and then we'll get to this too. Uh, Chuck Lorre uh, changed my life um, at, at Big Bang Theory. And you talk about genius. I mean, the man just, he, he's a musician. And so he has perfect pitch when it comes to comedy. And that's not just the script, but it's every detail, uh, every, every prop, every, you know, just you name it. The, the, he would, I remember I got to Big Bang and I, I watched him go, it was a brand new show. And he, he, he went and looked at the bookshelf and he would look at the book titles. It's like, people will freeze frame this. So these book titles have to be accurate. And so he really taught me about detail. Um, and I, mean, I, I can go on about Chuck for, I, he's the reason I'm a director uh, in, in many, many more ways than just that he gave me my first break. I mean, honestly, you, uh, you guys, uh, uh, apart from directing some little scenes in Stewart's class, which were pivotal and terrific. And I did a one woman show that uh, I had developed with a friend of mine named Lisa David Dean. I had never directed anything until The Big Bang Theory. That was my very first thing ever. Oh. So that was a whole uh, uh, other thing. Um, so we'd have to say Chuck Lorre was the greatest influence on your career uh, then. Huh? Well, he, I, I would, I Maybe? mean, each each one, yes. I mean, as far as in practical purposes, of course, you know, and then, and Chuck was um, not, to, you know, he really supports people coming up from within. Um, you know, I, I, when I asked if I could direct one, it was already the, it was the third season and I, I was actually planting seeds for the fourth season. So I want to say it was probably in January I was asking and I had, I asked my line producer, uh, so an amazing woman named Faye Oshima, who has also been a mentor. I've worked with her for years and years. That's how I got Big Bang Theory. She brought me on and I said, you know, Faye, I'd love to be considered at some point. And, you know, before Big Bang, I had been on every single sitcom. If you look at my IMDb, it's every show that, you know, you've either never heard of or barely ever. And some of them had huge stars. And my big wish, I just kept saying, I just want to go to a Christmas party. And because every show, <laughs> you know, you'd start it in July and it'd get canceled by Thanksgiving. And, Aww. you know, and then the next run was, you know, pilots in February, March, April, and then you're unemployed. So a lot of unemployment. Um, yeah. And, and the, Joey, my, my husband said, you know, I, you might want to start 
dreaming a little bigger. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you're right. Because a couple of times I said, I just want to go to a Christmas party. And we'd go to the Christmas party and they'd say, oh, and by the way, this is also our rap party. That happened twice. And I'm like, oh, Aww. God. <laughs> so, but, you know, here's the, the, the flip side of that. And, and this is why, like, everything in life, it, it all happens for a reason. So I ended up being a first AD for 12 years uh, before Big Bang. And, uh, or no, probably uh, nine, nine years before Big Bang. And, uh, but I'd worked for 12 or 13 years before that. But every show that had been canceled, I knew all those showrunners. And when I did finally start directing, I ended up almost all of them. I would get shots on their various shows. And some as recently as last year when I was doing Man With A Plan, I had worked, that's Jeff and Jackie Filgo. I had done a series and a pilot with them. I did Hot in Cleveland because I had done a series with Suzanne Martin. Uh, Marco Panette, I had I did Kirsty with him because I'd been on I'm With Her. So it's like all of these different shows. So it just shows you, it, it no matter, you, you think you're struggling. And, and frankly, I didn't find it a struggle. It was fun. I was making a living and I enjoyed what I was doing. Um, so it was all, you know, all good stuff. It's a great living. So yeah. Chuck Lorre was the one who gave you your first break as a director. He, he and did. What, what did you work on with him? How many shows or what shows? Well, when I, yeah, when I was starting, it was only Big Bang. So I had, uh, I had, and he didn't know me. Faye, Faye brought me in, Faye Oshima brought me in. And we had done uh, the first two seasons, had gone very, very well. And we were halfway through our third season. And by uh, early on, they were trying several directors and, um, and then uh, a, a wonderful director I'd worked with before became the house director. His name's Mark Sandrowski. We're still friends today. I've actually, he's another one. I, I've learned a lot from him. Uh, and what was happening over those couple of years at Big Bang, you know, he was very open to me asking questions. And, and I would do, I had done this on other shows too, where, you know, it, it, like I would have gotten a break much sooner had some of these shows that were canceled been picked up. Um, but I, I very often tried to teach myself you just watch and learn and say, okay, well, you know, how would I, how would I stage these actors? And so I would get the script and I would break it down and just test myself. And especially as Big Bang, you know, once Big Bang, we realized, okay, you know, we have a home here for a while. Um, I had time and, and the more you do something, the kind of easier it gets. Even Big Bang was still, they were big shows. Um, I, the, the one comment that I used to hear, like, how hard can it be to have, you know, five people sitting on a couch? Let me tell you something. <laughs> the hardest. The, 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 the precision and, and also what Chuck demands, you know, uh, uh, the precision of that and the way you have to cover people. And, you know, Jim Parsons, he's sitting in the middle and you never know what, you know, or you do know, but like which, which direction he's playing things. You have to have a camera on. You sometimes need 10 cameras, but you only have four. So you have to figure out how you're doing this. Um, but so because I had a home for a while, I was able to kind of test myself and, what was, what was really interesting, I would shadow block, uh, meaning I would take the script that before we'd even rehearsed it, I would try to stage the actors. And, and my process too, when I'm staging a scene, when I'm directing, um, I, and a part of this I learned from my father, part of this I picked up from other people. I, tr I try to give everybody start marks and then not really say much. Just say, you know, you're gonna be here, you here, you here, and then see how it kind of lays out. And you're thinking with cameras in mind, but you're also thinking primarily with story and relationships. And, you know, and, if, and so many, so much of sitcoms are, are uh, they're in two shots. So if you have people, uh, you know, engaging with these, you have to make sure certain people are next to each other because if they have an aside or they're sharing a look or whatever that is. And so you have to, all of that kind of goes into your, your, your staging. And so what I would do is kind of pre-block it myself and compare it against Mark Chandrowski. And I found something really interesting. Uh, there were a couple of occasions where I would block it, 
the same way he did, except it was mirror images. So for example, you know, if you're in a bar, we'd have, there were, the, there were the, uh, like five characters and I would put, you know, uh, trying to, if I'd put, if I had Kaylee on the far left, Mark had her on the far right. And, you know, or, and, and the relationship was exactly the same. And, it was, and so I went to him, I said, look, isn't this weird? I have everything, the relationship exactly the same, except it's completely opposite to what you have. And he said, well, there's just many different ways to do things. Um, and ironically, it's I'm left-handed and Mark's right-handed. So I was going like, to ask you that. I, I, it's, yeah, because and, I'm left-handed and my mom always gave me a bad time that I did everything backwards. Uh, yeah. And so it's how you, and, and, and I, I use this expression, this show I just did is called, uh, and we can talk about that in a minute, uh, it's called Call Me Cat. And it's uh, Maya Bialik is doing this show mm -hmm. on Fox. It's adorable. Um, but she owns a cat cafe. And I was talking to the executive producer there. We were talking about some stuff. And I said, well, you know, and it just slipped out. I said, well, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. And I went, oh, I think that's probably not the right thing to say on a show like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then, um, you know, I, with Mark kind of, you know, got, watching him and learning from how he was doing things and Faye Oshima being supportive. And, and I knew Chuck respected how I was running the stage. They were, you know, he was, he's like my father. And he, he's a very similar animal. Like they, they want things done the way they want things done. And, you know, and also like, right, he's, the man is just right. <laughs> he sees things and you're like, wow, how, like, how did I not see that? It's amazing to me. And so you learn to go like, okay, one day when I grow up, I want to be like that. I want to see that. And, um, and so, you know, <laughs> with, with my life producer, we, we kind of said, I, I said, you know, I'd love to put my name in the hat for next season. And so she said, well, she said, here's what we're going to do. Get together the reviews from your show that you do, your one woman your one woman show you direct and I'll, and I had a little press packet. Uh, she said, I'll bring it to Chuck and we'll see what happens. And it was a Friday afternoon and um, she called me, you know, I was working on the schedule for the, the shooting schedule for the following week. And she said, all right, I'm going in. And about an hour later, she came back, she called me. She said, well, I talked to Chuck. I said, yeah. She said, well, he does not want to see your materials. And I said, oh, okay. I said, thank you. I said, I, I so appreciate you going to talk to him, going to bat for me. And she said, he doesn't want to see your materials because as soon as I said you were interested in directing, he said, I think that's a fabulous idea. The sooner the better. And actually you're going to be up directing episode 20, which is in five weeks. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and I'm sitting there now, you know, I, this is a person that, you know, I, I, every year I ask Joey, my, my husband, he sweated out with me. What show am I going to get? Am I going to get a show? I'm going to sit one out. Direct, getting an episode to direct on the Big Bang Theory was the easiest job I ever got in my entire life. The easiest job by way of, you know, 15 years of climbing the ladder. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, at that moment was, was about, you know, oh, 20% excitement and 80% sheer terror. Like, what <laughs> the hell have I just gotten myself into? Um, and then, you know, I, I, I got that episode. It went amazing. And then uh, every year, uh, Chuck would give me uh, another one or sometimes two. And then he had a, a new show called Mom. And I got a call. I was sitting in Faye's office and she hung up and she said, you're about to get offered a mom. And I never asked for that one. And basically when I thanked him, he said, I, I think you're going to be a good match for those ladies. And it was, I, that was, so they also have their own uh, house director, but so to be able to get episodes here and there, and I, I directed eight of those and I, I loved that show. That uh, was and then delightful. It's just yeah. been amazing. And then, and then as I started to direct more and more, 
you know, it was an interesting thing that happened. Um, my, I got an agent, uh, a wonder, you know, the, between Faye and uh, uh, one of the vice presidents at Warner Brothers uh, had been uh, incredibly supportive of me. Um, and her name's Maddie Horn. And between Faye and Maddie, they actually helped get me an agent. So I have an incredible agent at UTA I'm still with. Uh, it's been eight years. And when I first started going out, you know, uh, the kind of trajectory when you're a kind of a first AD becoming a director, you hit the Disney shows, you hit Nickelodeon shows. And, and so, I, you know, and for about a year or two, I did just nothing but general interviews. And the weird thing is that, I, I, like, we don't have kids. I don't watch those Disney shows. And there's nothing against them, but I, I've heard that they're just nightmarish to work on, that they are all enormous, enormous episodes with special effects. And, you know, and there's kid hours and there's all this stuff. And there was this kind of temptation. And even when I would meet at Disney and some of these places, they said, well, we love first ADs that want to be um, directors. And there was kind of a push to like, well, maybe I go start working full time, but I'm going to, you know, once you leave the prime time world, I'd be in this now kids world. And, I, you know, they don't pay that well. I mean, they pay okay, but compared to staying on the Big Bang Theory and getting these occasional episodes of mom and getting, you know, uh, so almost by default, I was like, you know, I, I had this agent who believed in me and I said, look, my instinct, like these are, it's not my, it's not my forte. I don't know that I'm going to bring that much to it. I mean, yeah, I can, I, you know, I've been an AD forever. I know how to run a show. Um, my instinct is to stay at Big Bang and kind of slowly work our way. And, and it really paid off. And he was on board from the very beginning. And by accident, we just targeted big network shows with big stars. And, and even, you know, I, I did quite a few on um, TV land, which became, I forget what it's called now. Um, but I did some hot in Cleveland's Kirstie Alley, uh, you know, and it ended up being this kind of wonderful by default break that, that I was very selective about what I would book out for. And then Chuck also was supportive of me coming and going. Um, and it also didn't hurt that his, his daughter had started as the set PA and she's become one of my dearest friends and she got in the director's guild as a second second and she climbed the ladder and what was even more wonderful so when I would leave, she would first AD, or when I would direct, she would first AD. And then eventually she started to direct on Big Bang mm -hmm. and I could first AD for her. And that was just, a, I mean, to be, you know, I, to, I feel like I was a wonderful student and I also got to be a good teacher and to have your student, you know, direct and you get to be there for it was, that was just outstanding. And she's, she's doing amazing. She's the first AD on Bob Hart's Abishola, one of Chuck's shows. Um, she's directed over there. She's directed Young Sheldon. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's just been great to kind of all come up together, you know. And, and would, you really say, just... would you say then that Big Bang Theory was your favorite show that you've worked on? Or do you have a oh, favorite besides that? I have other ones that were, that were really fun. Um, Big Bang Theory was, uh, I, I don't think I will ever get to experience anything like that again. You know, it, that was lightning in a bottle. It was, it was a joyful experience from, for 12 years. I mean, yeah, everybody, there's, there were stressful days and, you know, stressful periods, but um, it was to be with a group of people all operating at their, at their highest level. My friend, uh, Gay Linville was the associate director and on Big Bang. And she was saying, you know, what was incredible to watch is to see everybody from the dolly grips to the electricians to the camera operator everybody because we knew how special this show was 
you just you work. And I, the, the weird thing is, like by the by the time people made fun of us, because by the ninth, tenth, eleventh, somewhere eleventh, twelfth season, they, they we got to a point where we barely went in. You know, we would we table read on Wednesday. You would rehearse on Thursday for a little bit. Friday was dark. Monday we would pre-shoot, and if the actors, the, the ones that weren't in scenes, they didn't come in. And then Tuesday, you know, you would run, do rehearsal, do a, a camera run through, and then you'd shoot the show. So basically what had been a five-day week was whittled down to basically two and a half days. And wow. as, an, as an assistant director, it was great because you're like, yeah, would, Fridays we'd come in, I'd work schedule, we'd go to the to lunch, the commissary, you know. But when you're a director on that, and, and I directed on that schedule too, the pressure was so much harder because you had to have, there was no rehearsal time. You had to have all your ducks in a row. And, you know, the, frankly, the actors probably didn't need it, but God forbid you were a guest actor on something like that. I mean, imagine coming in and you are with the thoroughbreds and you have to get up to speed fast, just fast. And we would warn guest actors like, you know, hang on. And sometimes if they were big stars, you know, they'd be used to it. But even big stars sometimes be like, wow, this pace is crazy. You know? That would terrify me. <laughs> yeah. What would you say the qualities of a TV series director have to be in order to be successful? Oh, that's a great question. I've never thought about that. Um, I think you have to be flexible. Um, I think you have to... You know, in this day and age, I, my father and I talked about this too. It was a bit, when in his day, the director was the king or the emperor, you know. Um, and obviously, you know, Norman Lear would have been the emperor, uh, but but the directors had a lot more, especially a house director would have a lot more power and leeway uh, to, to just do, you know, be creative and do things. Uh, this is absolutely the showrunner's medium, the writer's medium. And so, and especially when you have some of these truncated schedules, you know, you come in at, you know, nine o'clock or 10 o'clock and you're, you have to put the whole thing on its feet and have a full run through at two o'clock with a, with a, usually with an hour lunch. So you've got to be, you have to be fast. Um, and you, you're enacting their vision. And, and the interesting thing that happens with, with writers because of the, the schedule that they're on, if you don't present what they've written, then they'll never know whether it works. So I remember being on, on Mom and uh, this amazing episode. So they, they killed off a main character. Um, I remember the actor's name. And his character's name was Alvin. And it was just, it's one of the, it's one of the that's funniest and most, you know, you're sobbing and howling episodes. Um, and Beverly D'Angelo was uh, guest starring and she's incredible. And we're trying to work out this one thing. She said, well, it's not working. I said, yeah, I said, but if I just do this or this or that. And I was explaining to her, I said, we have to show them, and like, yes, we can, we can pitch something, but we have to show them exactly what they wrote. Because if, if they don't, then, they're, then they'll never know whether what was in their brains works or not. And she did later come to me and she said, you know, thank you for explaining that to me. Because it's, a, it's, you know, as actors and director, you're, you're trying to make things work. And sometimes, sometimes you can't, <laughs> you know, sometimes they need to know that, that either yeah. that thing doesn't work. You do as best you can, but if you start changing the lines, start changing the words. So like everything on Big Bang, there was, there was, I would say zero, maybe 0.1% improvising, but it was word perfect. You do the words. Now you sometimes, and the actors would often have an opinion and you'd say, great. And I remember we did this on mom a couple of times. We'd say, let's, so here we'd stage something and say, but let's show them what they've written. And I still do this today. Show them exactly what they've written. They can see that it doesn't work. And 
And of course you want to come up with a potential solution. So uh, I did this recently on Call Me Cat. We're like, say, okay, well, here's our pitch. We'll try this. And the writer might say, oh, I really like that. But you know what? No, that, let me try. I have this in the back of my head, which all you could do is you've shown that you're going to try and, and work something. Do you know what I mean? That's great. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, and I think that would probably be a very challenging thing for actors coming into this medium. And I, you know, I haven't really, I've never directed single camera. Um, I've AD'd a little bit of that. So I, I, what I'm talking about is very specific to multi-camera, uh, you know, it, well, they used to have an audience. Now it's all <laughs> everything with, with COVID, it's yeah. all pre-shoots. Um, and so you've alluded, very- you've alluded to some of this, but what is your work process? How do you prepare for the rehearsal on the table read and whatever's coming first? What, what the, you- yeah, there's a couple of things. So, so number one, I'll, I'll get the script. The first thing I like to do, I like to just read it and I, I don't write anything down. I like to read it as an audience person because that's the only time I really, excuse me, get to re- get to kind of experience it the way an audience person would. Uh, then the next thing I do, if it's a show that I know, I'll just start uh, staging it uh, and I'll do little diagrams on my script. If it's a show that I don't know, I make sure that I get set plans. And it's the, I tell other directors this too, knowing the sets and, and knowing, getting those set plans early, not just coming in and assuming that, uh, especially if it's a swing set, a swing set is something that is not there every week that you might have some say or that they might ask your opinion about, hey, well, how should we do this? Um, and making sure that I can stage what they've written. Um, you know, and I've had situations where uh, I had a set where, the, you know, the, the character's walking down a hallway and then I look at set plans, well, there's no hallway. And so that's yes, when you call the line producer and you say, and you know, and sometimes they, they build the set off of an earlier draft. And so, you know, it, they may not be tracking it. They, and, you know, things happen so fast, they may be onto the next episode. And so you're gonna say, oh, by the way, so if, if this moment's still here, I'm gonna need a haul. Uh, you know, and do I want a Steadicam? Do I want to, you know, usually this, I always say Steadicam, we just use, they use it quite a bit on Call Me Cat. Most of them, you know, it's a, for a specialty shot. Um, you would just do it on a dolly. And so I, I will stage everything out, kind of get a sense of like uh, where things go, where I, you know, do I, if it's a party, do I need to set up a bar somewhere? Do I need a food table? Like how are these people going to move in this space? Um, so, so that gives me a sense of, of what I'm doing. It also prepares me for the production meeting so that when you sit down with the, with all the department heads, they, you know, you say, oh, here's what I'm thinking for this moment. Uh, she's going to be cooking X, Y, or Z, or I'll just say, sometimes I won't even be that, but I'll say, what, what could she be cooking? Or what would she, a lot of times actors, it's like, you know, what do you want to eat? Um, uh, my ambiolic's a vegan. So it's like, we would work out whatever, whatever's in the script. Like if it can, if it's not something that's vegan, can we have something vegan make it look like something that's not vegan, you know? Um, and so that kind of prepares me for that first day of rehearsal for the first, for the production meeting. Um, I do a thing for the table read and the t- and especially in these multicam shows, the table read is a performance. And I would say this also to actors coming in. Uh, do not come in thinking I can just kind of waltz through um, a, a table read and just kind of say the lines. And it's, I've seen it happen so many times, they just get fired on the spot. And it's, and it's heartbreaking because they think, oh, a table read's like, like in a play, we're, we're gonna find the character to get, no. Make some choices. You know, uh, if there's something really specific, if there's a, um, if there's a, a pronunciation or if there's a joke that I think, you know, one of the moms I did, there was a, uh, there was a Linda Lavin comes and there was, they were making Jewish food. And so Anna Ferris asked me how to pronounce certain words and we were talking. So I had a little sidebar before the read 
uh, just to make sure people understood either how to pronounce it or or if they're unclear on something. Uh, but again, if you're a guest coming in, you, you don't necessarily know. So you just have to be prepared to say like, okay, do you know, you know I just wanna make sure you're clear on what this joke is, something like that. Um, and then, so the performance is not just for the actor, the performance is for the director. And I have seen directors come in um, with no energy and they just read the dial and then he enters the room. And I mean, you know, you just want to kill yourself. And uh, so uh, you, you, you need to, you need to have a voice. You need to, and I've done other shows where I've come in and you could see they've had directors they didn't like and well, they'll have a writer reading the, the, the stage directions uh, because there's, there's a pace and there's a rhythm to it. I also will go through and sometimes there's a lot of like heady description. I trim that down. You know, if there's something like Leonard Sheldon Penny, da, 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 instead of saying, you don't want to say all those, you say the gang went across to the restaurant, you know, and so you're, you're, you, so I always kind of rewrite the, my script uh, as a performance piece. So I guess in a way I am acting, but, uh, oh, yeah. and then, and then, uh, and then I don't do this as much anymore. If I have time, I'll read it out loud. Uh, at home in my office, just to make sure I'm not skipping over any words. Um, I make sure that I turn the page. You know, I make little arrows to myself because you're on, and you only and once that once that uh, train leaves the station, you know, boom, it's uh, and and everything rides rides on that read. That's such, so, that's such yeah. a great piece of information for yeah. aspiring directors out there, um, and actors, and actors, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah. And, and you may have alluded to this. This is kind of a threefold or twofold question. What would you say is the difference between the t directing a TV comedy series, the process of it, and the feature film directing process or drama series process? And also, would you say that comedy is harder to direct than drama? Well, here's what's it. So I have never, like I said, I've never directed a feature. I've never directed uh, a drama uh, or anything single camera. Um, my father had done both, and you know he had done westerns. He had, I hope to actually, because I we, all the shows that we watch actually, I love like historical dramas, The Crown, Victoria, all that. I mean, I would love one day to be able to do something like that. Um, uh, he, my father, always said comedy is so much harder uh, than drama. And, you know, I, I would probably concur only in that um, there's another character involved in comedy and that's, that's the audience. And everything is about that audience. Everything is about, and especially if you're doing it live or quote live, in, you know, if you're filming it in front of an audience, you have to think about how am I gonna land that joke? Because once they've heard the joke, they're not gonna laugh as hard the second time. And that informs all of your decisions, even in terms of how you, you know, like I was like I was explaining, you you might need ten cameras. You only have four, so you have to pick what's that first pass going to be that the audience is going to watch. Where do you want that joke to land that first moment? And I don't know that those are things that you have to think about on a drama show. I'm sure that drama shows have their own. You know, um, it's all hard. You know, all, all of it is challenging. Um, but the comedy, to me, and it's that that music analogy. I've heard this several times. Uh, it, it, comedy is music. And I got this even a little bit from, from Robbie um, because at one point they had me doing, so a lot of times when you're an assistant director, you'll stand in before the stand-ins get there on a, on a light rehearsal day, I might read for one of the actors, you know? And I think on one of the shows I was doing with Robbie, I wanted to audition for the radio announcer because it was 500 bucks or something. And, um, 
he was explaining there's a rhythm to the, and, and I wasn't quite hearing it. You know, he was saying, no, you say it, da, 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 or, you know, at, and I, I didn't, I, I can hear it now, but when I was first starting, like, so, so there, so it's, it really is notes, it's music. Um, and it's waiting for those beats. And when a lot of times drama actors will come in and even comedy actors too, to, to an extent, but you have to remind them, guys, you got to wait for your laugh. You, you know, they, you have to have a false, uh, people that have done theater do much better in this multi-camera medium than, uh, than yeah. movie actors. Um, it's that, that, you know, how is it? Yes, of course you want to answer that person. They just said such and such, but there's another little piece that's there. The audience has to catch up with you. So I, I think there's a, there is a bit of that. And then yes, you're constantly, and, and, and like certain, certain actors, um, I will put in a position, uh, this is a sweet story I can share. When I was doing Hot in Cleveland, um, <clears throat> we had a huge scene it's a big auction, and um, Betty White kept going up on her line, and <clears throat> and she's hysterical. And she would she'd go up on her line, and then she'd stop, and she'd look out at the audience, and then just go nurse. And I mean, it just brought the house down. And you know, she's ninety three years old, and we get through the take, and I and I before I got notes from the producers, I ran around the corner, and I because I knew you know even though she's I knew she was upset at herself. And so I see Valerie Bertinelli is comforting her. And I kind of got down and I looked at Betty and I said, now Betty, I said, this is not a play. I said, I put you in that spot for a reason. So she's a single, meaning I can pick up Hirsch line with her line at any point. We just go to it, right? I said, so don't worry about your line. I said, I'll pick you up right there. This is all intended, number one. And number two, those people love you. They are eating this up. You could you could recite the phone book and they'll go, you know, they'll go crazy. And the relief on her face, she just like, thank you for telling me that. And it just was to get one of those lessons to me that as nervous as I get directing, it's like, Betty White gets nervous? Are you kidding me? And and so many of them do. And it just shows you, right? Just it's just like uh, Linda Lavin said the same thing. She goes, I get nervous before every run through. And I was right before, it was one of my early moms. And I was like, my, my lungs are in my throat. I'm terrified. She says that to me. I go, oh. So like, okay, if Linda Levin can get nervous, if Betty White can get nervous, then it's okay that I'm nervous. Well, I saw a photo of you with Stephen Hawking on the set of The Big Bang Theory. Did he contribute to the show? And he was a, he do you have a, a story star. about him? Yeah, he was a guest star. Um, we actually... We went to, he, so once a year, he would come out to um, Caltech and, you know, because of his health was so frail, like, you know, they, they had, they had used him, um, I'm trying to remember the lead up to it. They had, um, Wallowitz's character used to do imitations of, of Stephen Hawking. And then I think they had a running gag where they would actually have Stephen Hawking's voice and he would talk to a Sheldon and they, they would, he would record it and send it in. And the timing worked out that he was, he would come to California once a year, I think. And they somehow worked it out so that um, you could, we, we, we went to him because they were afraid it was gonna be too difficult for him to travel and because he would stay at Caltech, all the meals were there. And that particular episode, it was directed by Mark Sandrowski, but he it was a hiatus week. So he was away in Michigan teaching a course. So Chuck actually directed that scene. And, you know, it's think about that, like you're directing Stephen Hawking. And the other thing is he wanted to do his own. So he knew, you know, they, he pre-programmed the words, but he wanted to do it. He wanted to do the lines, you know, with, with actor timing. Well, the problem is it, when you would talk to him, 
it, it sometimes could take up to two minutes before mm -hmm. the words to come to come out. And at one point, we were, uh, you know, Sheldon had said it was Jim Parsons had said his line, and it was very hard for Jim too, because you know, here you're acting with someone, and you're you have to stay in character, knowing that it's going to take some time to get the response. In editing, it seems like it's instant, um, but it ended up being a, just an amazing episode. And then, ironically, he was well enough, and he really, he wanted to come to the set. So that week, uh, he did come for a run through. We had Mike Massimino was an astronaut um, who'd been up to the space station and he was a recurring character on Big Bang. And we just, we loved him. And we, they did a thing, a, a, a satellite link up with the guys in space. And we got to talk to them. It was on a, on a lunch break. So the whole crew, we got to, it was a birthday. They were doing a birthday surprise for the astronaut. But he's, and so we're live linking to a guy in space who's like, oh, I'm, I can't believe it. I'm looking at the set. And he goes, well, here, let me show you what I, and he takes his laptop and he puts it to the window and we get to see earth. And I'm like, what job in the world do you oh. get to do that, right? Oh, I mean, so wow. absolutely. So that's why I wasn't gonna leave to be a director on a <laughs> Disney show. I'm like, I'd rather stay It's first AD with these occasional directors and, you know, paid off. So, you know, mm -hmm. it, it's just been great. It's just, uh, I, what a joy. We noticed that you've directed a couple of shows in 2020. Were they completed prior to shutdown imposed by the uh, uh, pandemic? What happened in 2020, um, so the, well, Man With A Plan was actually shot in, um, in 2019. So we wrapped that uh, at Christmas last year. Uh, that's the Matt LeBlanc sitcom. I had done a couple of the year before and they brought me back for four. He's another one, this guy. What a, he's just a genius. I mean, the, the stuff that you, you just, I, I, I just can't say enough things about him. He, he was amazing. Um, I did a, a one episode um, in February of a Fox show called Outmatched, which was a lot of fun. It didn't, it didn't last very long. Um, and I had gone back to a show called The Neighborhood, which I had done the season before. And that's where I was actually working when the world shut down. And we ended up not finishing the episode. Um, we were, however, the last sitcom the last show to have the plug pulled. Tell us so a teeny bit about the show for 2021. You mentioned Call Me Cat. Oh, is that, is yeah. that still, you still have more to shoot or it's complete? I've done my two. Uh, I may go back for, hopefully they'll have, they indicated they'd like me to come do a lot, but um, they've got they've got 13 ordered. I think there's one or two open. Um, so they start back up. So they, we, they shot a pilot in October. I did the first two episodes. They may not air, uh, my, my first episode will be the second one. I don't know about my second episode where that'll air. Um, they, so they did three before Thanksgiving. They're gonna do another block of three before Christmas. Although, you know, the state's shutting down. Well, I, like, I, although I've, I've read that uh, entertainment is considered essential workers, which is a very oh. odd thing to me. Um, uh, I think that has to do with the safety protocols that they're doing, and, and it's quite remarkable what, what they're doing there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, as someone who really has barely left the house uh, to go, to, I had to really wrap my head around the anxiety of being around 150 people, and you know, you, you, there's, you can't really social distance. You can a little bit. They kind of group you into pods, but you know, I'm with the actors, and I'm with them when they don't have masks on. So you know, I'm wearing a mask and my glasses plus a shield. And, you know, you get the daily testing. And then before you even get on the lot, there's an app you have to deal with and take your temperature. And so, but th even with all that, there's still shows shutting down. There's still people testing positive. But I think, I don't think they're, they're giving it to each other there. I think they're coming in positive. So they're catching people soon. 
Yeah. But it's, it's, yeah. um, but the show is, it's, it's adorable. I had more, I, I interviewed for it way back before the shutdown. It's based on an English sitcom called Miranda. And if you've never seen Miranda, I highly recommend it. It's on Hulu. Um, and then uh, it's, it's absolutely hysterical. And then this is Maya Bialik stars in it. She's from Big Bang. Jim Parsons from Big Bang is one of the producers. So you can see where I got my, my uh, entree from um, and it was so good to be back with with them and it's got this wonderful cast Susie Kurtz is in it I was and I had just been with her on Man with a Plan Leslie Jordan who's for, you know from Will and Grace and he's hysterical Cheyenne Jackson and then there's some wonderful young uh, newer actors who are just great we will a, really look. A, yeah. We will really look forward to that, it's and we want to thank our listeners today because our guest today has been television director Anthony Rich. Thank you for talking with us today, Anthony. You guys, thank fun. you for having me. This was a blast. Thank you so much. That's it's my pleasure. Great. That's great. Awesome. for joining us on Late Boomers, the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact. Have you ever asked yourself this question, why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million dollars in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand, and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers, eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve one million dollars in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.